0: Welcome to Dissecting the Markets. Today's special guest, his name is S.J. Barconi. Now note that this is probably one of the best interviews that this podcast has ever had, so stay tuned. And for those of you that are wondering when part two of our interview with our good friend Lane will come up, know that it will be coming soon. But in the meantime, Enjoy this episode? Before we get started, please listen to our sponsor. Jay, welcome on the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I am doing superb. I'm doing super. Thank you so much for uh, welcoming me onto the show, and I'm uh, very grateful for the opportunity.
0: That hey, it's a pleasure. Um, so first, um, tell us about yourself.
1: I'd be glad to. Um, I will start with a couple basics. Um, SJ is my name, and it's not initials. I get that a lot. Um, my last name places me primarily as a Hungarian. It's pronounced Baracone. Um I have Hungarian roots along with a couple other nationalities. I um, am in my early 40s. I live in the uh, United States. I live in the Midwest in a state called Ohio. I was born here in Ohio, and I remain here. I was born to a father who was an entrepreneur. Mm. Uh, So when I was born, uh, he already had a business, and by by that point, he had already been running a business for about four or five years. And I was raised in a household, um, no siblings. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. And I got to see firsthand um, how a household that is run through, some would call it self-employment, some would call it um, sole proprietor, entrepreneurship, various terminology, Um, I got to see that firsthand. And of course, like many youth, I didn't really come to appreciate that until I was much older. And now when I have an opportunity to talk to my dad, who's now in his late 70s, I always express appreciation for what he did. So that is my background at a high level. Uh, Then I had an opportunity to become the first in my family to go off into higher education to a university. I went to a university called Ohio Wesleyan, or pronounced shorthand, Olu, graduated from there a little over 20 years ago, and... I did not end up following my father into business and entrepreneurship, though, because there wasn't a business. My father had sold his business when I was still in high school, and then I really didn't have that entrepreneurial spark yet, and I ended up working in corporate life, and that lasted for about a decade and a half, and then I started to get... an itch, an an inkling to be more like my dad. And through a series of events, um, including uh, befriending a gentleman who knew me from corporate life, I ended up having um, a cup of coffee with a, a gentleman who I later found out was very wealthy. And he ended up becoming my very first mentor and started to teach me the ways of what we'll be talking about here a little later today on your show, which is the ways of thinking like an entrepreneur, thinking through more of a lens of what is called Austrian economics, and thinking more like someone who's a producer in society, someone who's creating value instead of someone who's consuming. So that came later on after about a decade and a half, as I mentioned, in corporate life. Then I started a process which ended up lasting for about roughly five years, where I made steps forward, first by changing the way I thought about money and finances, changing the way I thought about using my free time. In other words, I needed to build a network of people that I can lean on and grow from and learn from. So that would be the social piece. And then my mental game. I had to step up my mental game, and I became a student again. I became a lifelong learner. So these phases all carried over through about a five-year period, and about the end of that five-year period, which was about roughly five years ago, I went off full-time into entrepreneurship, and I now presently run two businesses.
0: Whoa, that's nice.
1: Uh, One of them is an educational business, and then the other one is a business where I help other entrepreneurs develop relationships and opportunities that allow them and their businesses to become more successful. So that is my two primary ventures. I also dabble in a few other miscellaneous entrepreneurial things as well. But that brings us to the present day.
0: Interesting. And regarding um, the mentor you had, um, did he or she um, introduce you to Austrian economics or did you first um, get exposure to it from university
1: great question um, thank you for also uh, teeing me up that because I didn't mention gender um, it was a gentleman although I believe you can be mentored by pretty much anyone as long as you as long as the mentee has an open mind and an ambition and a desire and um, a willingness to learn you can learn from anyone whether the person's younger than you, older than you, different gender, same gender, so on and so forth. So it was a gentleman. And no, I did not learn about Austrian economics directly from him, but I learned about it because he got me started in that lifelong learning, that mental game. Mm -hmm. So I ended up learning about it probably a couple years, I would estimate, after um, I first met him. But now here's the catch, though. You also asked me, did I learn about it in university? It turns out indirectly, but it was through one particular professor, and he has now passed along, and I still respect him immensely to this day. He was teaching a philosophy class. So it wasn't economics. It wasn't a business class. It wasn't entrepreneurship. It was a philosophy class and he actually indirectly introduced me to the Austrian school. However, I didn't realize it until later when I started to put the pieces together.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And when you put the pieces together, um, what type of wait, so if I'm getting this right, so you know, you discovered it, you know, through a professor and through other experiences. And um, how were you able to know that it was Austrian economics that was your conclusion? Um, did you have like other resources that um, directed you to it or?
1: Yes, other resources. So I was reading a lot to see um, one of the one of the fallacies of what I'll call conventional education or I actually prefer, in my educational business, my first of the two ventures I mentioned, I prefer to more call it schooling. Mm. So one thing that I didn't learn in schooling was that a lot of different kinds of topics and a lot of various um, sectors of the economy and just generally of the world all are interconnected in some way. So case in point, me connecting a philosophy class, which as I remember, I think I took that as a junior at at OWU, or maybe as a sophomore, but connecting that back to what I learned later. So the answer to the question is it came from other sources, and it took me even longer to realize, and this may be something that your audience has never heard, um, but they're actually, by some accounts, and again, knowledge is very elastic. So you can come to your own conclusions that this is um, the best way to sum it up and the best way to divide it. But I actually, I believe there's upwards of nine different schools of economic thought. Interesting. And and one of them is clearly Austrian the one that most people learn about in a university or a conventional um, model of being in a classroom and getting a credential at the end of the game is almost everyone learns about Keynesian. Some will also pick up monetarist or neoclassical. However, so few have gotten Austrian, and there's also several others like I mentioned, one of my favorites, by the way, which is not the focus today, but just for fun for your audience, is to become students and be curious. Is it's called um, it's called, as I recall, creative disruption um, economics. So, in other words, it focuses on how disruptions actually shape economic thought and thinking. So that's actually my second favorite, but Austrian remains my all-time favorite. And all this stuff just came together by reading. Learning, associating with different people, and picking up my mental game.
0: Interesting. And for those, and for those that don't know what Austrian economics is, uh, what is it?
1: I would say Austrian economics, summed up, and again, there's so many different um, ways you can describe it. So I'm going to encourage your listeners, your community, to do their own research, and I would point you to one primary source that is named after one of the grandfathers, if you will, one of the patriarchs of the school, and it's called the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S Institute, uh, named after Ludwig von Mises, or Mises, depending how you pronounce it. Basically, the way I would sum it up— and again, my own wording here is that individuals choose and make decisions, not organizations. So in other words, it's a school that is based on a more individual a more individual view of how does economics work day to day? How do we enter into transactions with other people versus how does two banks enter into um, an arrangement or two corporations or a college and a bank. So it's about individual decision-making in a much larger um, marketplace. So that would be the best way I can sum it up at a very, very high level.
0: Interesting. And regarding Austrian economics, um, how come – How like – in your opinion, um, why do you believe that Austrian economics isn't widely taught at universities?
1: I would say it's a function of you don't you or you as a collective term don't know what you don't know so a lot of university thought from my understanding, and I certainly preface this by saying I'm not a Guru, It's not like I studied um, how does a university present its curricula to the customers, a.k.a. the clients, the uh, students, right? But I would say, if I were to sum it up, is, again, it's what you don't know, what you don't know. And a lot of times, thought in a university environment tends to get ossified. It's been taught that way in the department of economics or the school of business or wherever it's taught. And it just keeps being repeated. And the professors that are brought on are being taught by other professors and getting their credentials, whether it's a master's or most likely a PhD, and they're getting it from other people who know the same stuff, but these people aren't choosing to go off and learn about any of the other eight, um, schools again, based on this one particular um, matrix that I ran into, right? So vast majority of time, the the professors are Keynesian. So they keep paying it forward, and the Keynesian school just continues to be the predominant method. And every so often, I'm sure, if you examine 50 different um, syllabi side by side, you will probably see some mention of the monetary school, some of neoclassical. You may get a little bit of Austrian, but again, it's primarily a function of how university thought tends to progress through time.
0: Interesting. And um, regarding like Austrian economics, um, do you believe that if business students um, learned, like, if they focused a lot more on Austrian economics rather than Keynesian economics, um, how would the world look like? I believe we
1: would have a world which would be more focused on one of my favorite ways of being one of my favorite ways of thinking, which again originated with my first mentor and just has continued to grow over the last roughly decade. And that would be be a world focused more on being a producer and a creator and a builder in society versus that of a consumer. Mm. The, That is the approach that I think would make such tremendous value in our world if more people looked at decision-making of how can I produce value for others rather than what kind of resources can I consume? So how many times do you know people, feel free to jump in here, how many times do you know people who constantly talk about stuff and they end up with stuff in garages, stuff in the basement, stuff in, um, in um, you know, storage containers. It's because we've been taught since literally the cradle all the way to our grave how to consume and buy, but not as many understand that in order to buy, you have to have another side of the equation, that is people who produce. And I think that would be a massive change. Um, We would be more focused on that. We also would be more focused on individualism and what I would refer to, and numerous others have called it, people or social power. So in other words, we would have a grassroots approach to solving thorny societal problems rather than waiting for some third party to come in and fix it. So in other words, we would say, okay, how can we create a community how can we create an association, an organization to deal with this in our backyard rather than waiting for some entity fifty, hundred, thousand miles away to deal with it for us? Okay, so we would be more focused on that as well. We would also be more focused, and this sort of ties in with that, on there's a line of thinking called voluntarism, where people come together voluntarily into units rather than being coerced or forced into something. So if you put being a producer, volunteerism, more social grassroots people power all together, I think it would be quite quite a different world if many more students and adults uh, were aware of these principles.
0: Interesting. And would you say there would be more billionaires or less billionaires? in that alternative world.
1: That is a great question. My gut leans towards more. However, I also think their case to be made that we would have less or a same amount of billionaires and many, many more millionaires.
0: Interesting. Because
1: we would have more we would have more people with the tools to be able to create their own solutions to thorny issues, to deep rooted, vexing problems. And one can say that if you are in a completely free enterprise situation where you are not, you know, you minimize coercion and you minimize force, um, you would have a situation where people are able to freely exchange knowledge products and services with a very transparent transactional process to the person entity organization family etc that need that solution therefore more people do this chances of them becoming wealthy by the right means would increase therefore more millionaires and then therefore Maybe the number of billionaires would stagnate or again it potentially could increase, but I think I think it's all about always always increasing the size of the pie rather than attempting to cut the, the existing pie up in different slices
0: interesting, and do you feel that this um Austrian economics like sorry this um alternative world that we're talking about do you see that um becoming readily adopted more in, like, emerging markets or in developed markets?
1: Probably easier for the latter, or I'm sorry, for the former, which would be your emerging markets. Because when you are attempting to build something from the bottom up that volunteerism that grassroots approach it's a little easier when you have what would be called a greenfield okay rather or some would call this a blue ocean where you don't have a lot of competition you don't have a lot of other things going on so I would say in a more emerging situation now in a developed situation a developed economy a developed market it's going to depend on It's going to depend on having what Edmund Burke called little platoons, where you have these little groups of people all around a society, and they are attempting to bring bottom-up transformation to a given sector of the economy, a given marketplace, a given nation, a given province, a state, a community, a neighborhood. And little platoons, or Seth Godin calls them tribes, the word community has been out there, communities. Basically taking what Zuckerberg did with Facebook, where he created 2 billion or so people in a gigantic community, or WhatsApp just passed 2 billion people recently. But in in this case, though, it's creating it on a much smaller scale. But I believe it's easier for that to take hold in an emerging situation rather than developed. But it's definitely not out uh, of the question to be involved.
0: both. Interesting, um, and with that, for you, um, like regarding like you know, just like being more of a producer rather than a consumer. Um, do you believe that, especially with um, you know many apps like Anchor and um, YouTube, etc., like making the creation of content a lot easier today? Um, do you feel that that will help accelerate, um, the adoption of, like, the producer mindset? Because becoming a producer, I find, is starting to become a lot easier than before.
1: Yes, um, I do agree with that.
0: And when you... Oh, sorry, go ahead, please. Oh, oh, no, um, because I was saying, like, um... Because usually, like, back then, like, you know, the the 60s, 70s, even earlier, like, if you wanted to, like, create a news network, or, like, create some other form of content, you need, like, you know, a huge team, a lot of infrastructure, now it's becoming a lot easier. And do you also find that if you create a platform um, for like for, like, you know, to allow others to also be producers... Um, does that create a lot more value, in your opinion, or not? Yes, it creates
1: a lot more value, and I think it encourages something that is very important, and that is interdependency. That is the concept of working in teams, probably just disassociated teams, meaning in that context that they're not per se sitting in the same physical place, because when you have an app-based economy, we have headed in that direction in our world over the last three, five, ten years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, apps are everywhere. The numbers that I'm hearing are, what have I heard? A couple million apps, um, I think, are on both the Google Play and the App Store itself, Um, So we've gone to a very decentralized model that way and information now travels faster than ever before because it's much more, the amount of friction has decreased tremendously. We also have a situation where people are willing to work together when they understand that they have commonalities because the old way of thinking was always about scarcity. It was about fear. It was about coercion. It was about force. It was about waiting for some third party to come to the rescue of a problem. So if you had an issue with crime or an issue with economic inequality, whether it's gender-based or whatever, you were waiting for that third party to come and fix it. But if you understand through an app-based world, through interdependency, through a producer mindset, You understand that you can help to be a small slice of a solution to this problem yourself, and you do not need the permission of existing very large, very slow-moving entities, regardless of who has believers of power. Because it's not a political thing, it's just a civics thing where you realize that social power, volunteerism, is a lot more powerful than waiting for a hierarchical approach which is more of a state power or an authoritarian um, mindset where again, you're consuming what they give you.
0: Interesting. Okay. So um, do you have any um, last things about Austrian economics before we move on to inflation?
1: Uh, yes. I'll throw a few things out for your audience and your community. Um, First, there's a handful of um, thought leaders in this space that I would recommend people look into and look into it with a very open-minded approach. Because like anything else, if you do research and you don't dig deep enough, you sometimes get suited by the people who, like they say, what was it? Um, I think it was Rockefeller was quoted one time as saying, competition is a sin. So you want to understand that the predominant ways of thinking are not just going to open up the doors to other ways. So you have to dig a little bit. But here's a few people I'll throw out. Besides von Mises, you've got Henry Hazlitt, Karl Menger, Frederick von Hayek, Murray Rothbard, and Jean-Baptiste Fay are some thought leaders to look into for Austrian economics. You could also include, indirectly, uh, Frederick Bastiat as well, and these are all individuals that in some way, shape, or form were part of the Austrian school and will continue to help you to learn more about this, because chances are you're going to have to do it outside of a conventional classroom, and you're not going to get a credential for it, but in this modern world, lifelong learning is non-negotiable.
0: Hmm. And um. So, so anyways, um. So the key for to survive in like a world where Austrian economics dominates is lifelong learning and um, maintaining that producer mindset.
1: Yes, I think these things can be connected because the world, the world that was, I'll refer to it, and again the. The powers that be, regardless of who holds the levers, I am not a big believer in politics. I'm a complete believer in civics, but the people who control the levers um, are not necessarily going to raise up physical force against someone who wants to learn about these things and grow into them, but they are on the mental side, on the social side, you might get ostracized because you're going to go into a, if you go into a conventional classroom, you're probably not going to be in the majority. So again, lifelong learning bypasses that conventional, more collectivist approach and allows you to learn how to be a producer, learn about alternative schools of thought, learn how to think more in the perspective of a community, a tribe, a little platoon. So yes, I think these are all inter- interlocked in some way
0: shape or form interesting now um let's talk about inflation so um you said like that you have a great definition of inflation that is rarely discussed um what is it
1: yes um and again um as a caveat i will say that the best almost everything that i say is already information out there. It just tends to be that this information is a little bit buried below the noise of the modern world. So you have to go and find it. Mm-hmm. So again, I it's this is not some radical um, thing where I all of a sudden woke up one morning and there it was, it's more of me distilling information through a lifelong learning um lens through a paradigm. So the definition of inflation that I would like to share is understand that any time you hear about interest rates being at record lows, you hear about all of the things that you can buy. At low, uh, low rates, like you hear a lot of people saying, buy a house, buy a house, buy, a, buy um, a new vehicle every few years. What you are really playing into is a definition, and you want to understand that inflation is literally going to eat you up sort of like a cookie monster if you don't start to think about what I can produce versus what I can consume. Because over the last hundred plus years, by many accounts, although you won't see these in the conventional sources, we have had over 2,500% inflation on a lot of the things that we take for granted every single day. So the definition is akin to a character that some of us grew up with, a cookie monster. It will literally eat you of your purchasing power It'll eat you of your ability to produce because you will just continue to consume and eventually those cookies are going to run out.
0: Interesting. And um, regarding the low interest rates, um, you know, especially with um, the inflation, like being like a cookie monster and all, um, do you find that lenders are the ones that are going to get hurt the most from inflation?
1: Who will be hurt the most from inflation are those who are in debt. So the debtor class will be hurt the most. Bottom line is if you are a consumer and you want to attempt to own everything, which by the way is flying in the face of the new economy, which is that of a gig sharing economy where you don't have to own everything anymore. So literally, you are going backwards in time by attempting to own things. So bottom line is, is if you attempt to own things, the class of people, and this cuts across every known economic measure, um, gender, um, race, creed, ethnicity, orientation, etc., is if you are a debtor and you struggle to understand that inflation is actually working against you every single day, it's almost like an eighth or a ninth wonder of the world, then you will really struggle in this economy that's emerging. It has nothing to do with who you vote for or anything like that. These are forces that are much bigger than any one political office or any one candidate or any one party or any of those other measures of what I would refer to as the old way.
0: But. um doesn't inflation decrease the value of your debt? So wouldn't um, the value of your debt decrease with inflation or not?
1: Actually, it does for the lender because the lender is looking for deflationary. The lender is looking for deflation to happen. So the value, and I'm going to attempt to explain this because this can get really complicated and it really shouldn't be. So I'm going to attempt to explain this for your audience, and let's see how well I do. Um, The lender, people who are creating money and are creating the loans, because money is no longer a physical thing anymore. The vast majority of the money in the world is now electronic. It's now digits. So the people creating it, the banks, the credit unions, other institutions, primarily those, always want the money that they lend to have more of a deflationary mindset because they want to know that they're going to get paid back regardless of if the economy is doing great or not so great. But the person who has taken out the debt is affected because the inflation is eating away at their purchasing power. So in other words, when they take out a loan, and I'm going to come up with a very, very generic example, if they take out a loan of $100 and the value of their labor, of their wages, of their of the way that they earn income continues to drop, that $100 to them now feels like $110, 120 and it keeps increasing. So I would contend to your community, to your listeners, that the true beneficiaries of inflation um are not the people who are going into debt buying all these things that they're told to buy because again of predominant thinking of being a consumerist but they're actually the beneficiaries are those who are providing the
0: money as part of the loans so that would be my answer and um will inflation um eat up the lenders returns Like, is that like a big issue for lenders or?
1: I would say a lender could potentially also be hurt by inflation because if they have to continue to write off bad debt, eventually it'll catch up with them. So in other words, they're going to continue to look for a warm market of people to loan to. So be aware of this folks, listeners, uh, be aware that every time you hear about them saying that you can qualify for the loan at a credit score of 500 and something, or you know, bankruptcy not an issue, things like this, they are attempting to keep their market as warm as possible. So they're going to continue to reach down further and find people who are willing to trade in their future wages and income, or what some would call income for an opportunity to consume something that they think is a great deal. But it's only a great deal if their purchasing power doesn't continue to erode. So in other words, the lenders could potentially be impacted by a very inflationary environment um, if they continue to have to write off bad debt, because eventually their profits will suffer, They'll have to lay off people that work within that industry. So, mortgage loan officers will be let go. Um, You know, credit analysts will be let go. Um, People work inside of of banks branches will be let go because, again, you cannot completely alter the natural law of supply and demand. You cannot continue to um, attempt to change it with human hands because these are immutable. Principles that go back millennia. And it doesn't matter if the economy is based on apps or if the economy is based on boogie whips.
0: Interesting. Um, and what are the. Oh, before we go into the four horses of inflation, um, do you believe that we're currently in a deflationary boom?
1: We were for a while. Um, And again, I can speak of the American or the U.S. Federal Reserve. For a period of time under the the current chairman, Powell, you can make a a good case that we were in a deflationary process, which actually is very necessary in my view. And if you read up on any of these Austrian school thought leaders, they'll say that every so often you have to prick the bubbles. There's a lot of asset bubbles out there. Um, because we kept pumping up the amount of money in circulation. The Keynesians loved that, but the Austrians would say, eventually, you're going to have to pay the piper. Okay? So we were in, in a deflationary environment for a while, but then what ended up happening, I would contend to you, is a lot of the big interest groups out there, the realtors, the banking industry, the um, folks that build homes, the folks that furnish the homes, the folks that sell cars, they started to get fearful because the vast majority of these people have never learned Austrian economics. They don't per se understand how to be a producer, so they're producing things that are supposed to be consumed and usually through financing. So as as Chairman Powell was attempting to deflate the economy, We started to end up with a situation where even the U.S. president, uh, Mr. Trump, was starting to get involved in this, and he would put a lot of pressure on the uh, chairman. So bottom line is we were for a while, but now over the past six months, give or take, maybe even upwards of a year, we've gone back the other direction, and we're now going back towards inflationary policies because we're now starting to print more money. We're now starting to push those – levels of credit further down, warm up that market, and a lot of things that we thought we learned from 2006, 7, 8, 9, I don't know if we ever really learned our lesson.
0: Uh, Do you believe that um, ESG investing has created a bubble in um, renewable energy stocks or investments?
1: Say that say that one more time, please.
0: Um, do you believe that ESG investing, like just like ES just like the trend being more popular in Wall Street and around the world? Yeah. Um, do you believe that has created an asset bubble for renewable energy stocks?
1: It is possible, yes. Um, because here's the thing. Because of an environment where people are constantly encouraged to consume, I mean, by the way, take a look at how GDP is measured. GDP is measured and you get big, huge whoops when the percentage of consumption versus the percentage of investment, the purchase of trade, um, is usually hovering in that 70% bracket. So in other words, even a very common measure of economic healthiness as GDP is measured by consumption. So in other words, it would not surprise me in the least that that's the case because asset bubbles are everywhere. I would point to you that some of the biggest ones, though, overall would be ones that you probably hear about, but again, you're probably going to hear about through a key so again, you have to dig deep. You're going to have to do what Toffler taught us. You have to unlearn and relearn information. So the first... One quickly that I'll point out would be uh, student loans. Student loans is a massive asset bubble right now, Um, and this is not going to be solved by attempting to forgive them. Uh, That is a short-term treating a symptom instead of the deep root cause. Uh, Another one is auto loans. Auto loans is a big bubble. Uh, Real estate, especially residential, is back in another bubble. These are some big ones. I would even say that in many respects, the stock market's back in the bubble and needs to be pricked. Um, Bonds are in a bubble, I would say, as well. Now, these are areas that I'm not deeply steeped in, so I'm sure some of your audience listeners might have a bone to pick. I'm just saying, generally speaking, keep an eye on these things because there's only so much you can blow it up before eventually... When you understand that the Austrian school teaches about understanding you have to have transparency with pricing in a market, you need to allow pricing to adjust automatically. You cannot put you know hard floors and hard ceilings on things. You just gotta let things happen. And sometimes you're gonna experience a market correction of 15, 20 percent. You might see a lot of cryptocurrency wiped out you might see an alternative energy situation drop and everyone goes back to what they know, which is fossil fuels. Bottom line is that these things do happen, but it's part of the natural process of an economy when it's left when you have true price transparency and you allow the free enterprise system to do most of the heavy lifting.
0: I'm surprised he didn't say Silicon Valley was a big bubble. Um, Do you think Silicon Valley is a big bubble or not?
1: It has elements of it, um, especially housing. And, again, I don't live anywhere near Silicon Valley, so I just hear about through the sources that I've come to trust. And, again, I am a lifelong learner, so I dig very deep for information. So understand that you're going to have to dig past page one of Google, I promise you, in order to find a lot of real, solid information anymore. But... um, I would say there's elements of a bubble in Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley, the average person cannot even find um, a residence, find a home, find rent, find um, a mortgage that they can actually put inside of their income. And this is in an area of the nation that has been leading the way for many decades. And that tells me that something might be wrong here. You know, um, what was the, what was the why and I'm going to only parrot it indirectly from Shakespeare. Something's rotten and Denmark. Okay, so I think that there is some elements of a
0: bubble in Silicon Valley, primarily through uh, real estate. Um, But um, when, when talking about this with um, a couple other realtors, um, some of them would say that um, the market's present a new paradigm shift where it's like most of the people who live in Silicon Valley um they're like making north of like 100k so the market's thinking that the average person's like making six figures um and that's how they justify these high valuations um would you say that's a good justification right. or not
1: I would say it is if you I would say it is if you um are Looking at the market through only the people that are active in the um, primarily in the tech space in the um, certain sectors of the economy. So, in other words, if you look at the whole in other words, who are the people who are providing the um, helping for pumping gas, you know, running the gas stations, the people who are behind the desk at the hotel, the person who is at the uh, local grocery store. If you include the whole pool of available labor, I would say that's probably not accurate, and it's probably not a good idea to rely on that. Okay, and then also too, I am a huge believer in the gig sharing economy, where you don't have to per se own something, but I would say you can loosely put rent, aka a conventional apartment, um, un, you know, or renting from a landlord, um, you know, someone who has multifamily investments. But you see, the point, though, is still, is, is are those realtors looking at the whole of the labor force in Silicon Valley or are they only looking at the people who are mostly in the news and are the ones who are the ones who are most commonly quoted?
0: Mm, interesting. Um, but what about, like, the overvaluation of profitless enterprises? Um, do you see that um, being a bubble or do you think devaluations for like profitless companies like for example um uber or um slack like do you think their high valuations are justified
1: that is something i think history will tell over time but i will say this it is taking people who are traditionally educated in parenthesis through you know conventional credentials Accredited institutions and it's definitely driving them to question everything that they ever learned and I would certainly have to include myself indirectly in this because what did I say earlier I went to a conventional university liberal arts private as it was um, but still accredited one of 4,000 or so in the nation so people who went through that conventional process are really going to struggle with a profitless enterprise and how do you value it Um Recently, there was some major um, ripples in the market with WeWork, which is the co-working model, right? So that went through some major um, discussions, and it's like, well, this you know this entity is barely making any money. Or another one that's getting a lot of press in the last several years is Netflix. Netflix burns through cash like they were throwing it on a on a bonfire. So a lot of these institutions that are newer over the last five, ten, fifteen years are basically having to understand how do I value what the service or the knowledge that I'm transferring really is worth. It's not the way of the industrial manufacturing economy, that's for sure, and I am a self-described futurist. I didn't mention that earlier. Um, However, there are things that are immutable natural laws. How do you value things um, versus just conjuring up something out of thin air? I really don't think that's sustainable.
0: Do you think that um, quantitative easing from the Federal Reserve helped um, prop up these um, profitless enterprises or not?
1: I think I think it did. Um, I would make a contention, and again, depending on everyone in your audience and who's going to listen to this, you know, people come to their own reasonable conclusions, and I would only ask that people, if they disagree with anything that I'm saying, that they would do their own research and dig deep. Don't just look, you know, again, at page one of Google. That's not even close to being a lifelong learner. But I would say QE on the whole was actually very destructive for wealth creation and the ability of citizens to get ahead because their ability to save was literally obliterated because savings rates – plummeted almost to zero, and it was all about consumption. And now when it comes to a p- more profitless enterprise, they were able to get debt financing. They were able to get equity financing at two, 5,000-year lows in interest rates. So absolutely, I believe it did prop them up. But now when you start to introduce rational price discovery and you start to look at this through the lens of actual valuation and true supply and true demand. I don't know. Some of, I think there's going to be when the, when these asset bubbles continue to be pricked and, or if they deflate or literally completely blow up different ways for different people, depending on various factors, I think this could be a little bit, um, you know, It's going to definitely introduce uh, that other school of economics I mentioned earlier. There's going to be a lot of creative destruction or disruption.
0: And I truly hope that we are all prepared. Yeah. um, And especially, you know, with the potential for many of these profitless enterprises to, like, go down in case, like, in case, like, investors stop fueling them with capital and all. um, Do you think Silicon Valley real estate might also crash alongside... Um, a Nasdaq crashing?
1: I think there's potential for both. Um, Again, I will put a caution that I am not a guru in the markets or in Nasdaq specifically or even NYSE, but just from my knowledge, whatever you wish to ascribe to it, of the Austrian school and a producer mindset, thinking entrepreneurially as a civil entrepreneur, I would say that it's very possible that both could crash or collapse or deflate. Again, there's different ways it can happen. I, I would have I would have appreciated if we would have had more of a of a of a deflationary time period under the Fed, which I explained earlier. Chairman Powell was working on, but the the things started to slow down so much that a lot of the conventional um, Interest groups and people like to say the Fed is um, not subject to the whims of popular opinion and culture and politics, but trust me, that's not true. Um, it's just one of those things that they are a little more insulated, but those people still read the same press clippings as everyone else, and they still have to talk with the politicians, um, regardless of who's holding the levers, whether it's the so called blue jerseys or the so called red jerseys or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So there is definitely a possibility that both of them could be very much impacted um, by what's to come.
0: Interesting. Now, um, moving on to um, the four horses of inflation, Um, what are they?
1: Now, this is where inflation starts to become very real to someone who... Is And I used those examples a little while ago um, with the other question about when you're talking with Silicon Valley realtors, which again, I don't live anywhere near Silicon Valley, but here where I live in Ohio, there are people in the realty space that I know personally who would say buy a home and they wouldn't even question it for a second, even if the person is stretched very thin because the understanding of inflation is not the understanding of inflation that's really, truly happening when you start to peel back the uh, noise and the Keynesian philosophy. So the four horses or horsemen of, or women, however you want to phrase it, of inflation, these are what are not normally included. So when you hear about a core or a chain CPI, consumer – Price index. Understand that these four are not included, um, and every one of us is facing these every day. So, first is your housing costs. Your housing costs tend to be netted out. So, rent or mortgage payments on you know loan, you know debt financing. One of the biggest ones, though, and this one hits everyone, is. I want you to think back, depending on how old you were, to how much it used to cost to buy a cup of coffee or to buy um, the proverbial gallon of milk or to, here's another one, you're driving through a drive-thru and you buy a a Happy Meal. That's food. Food is excluded. So we all need to eat, right? Whether Mm -hmm. we are vegans, whether we're vegetarians, paleo, keto, pure carnivores, whatever we are, we need to eat, right? Mm -hmm. And most everything is impacted by inflation in the um, supply chains for food. Another is the energy that we need to heat our homes or our other domiciles. So in other words, if you are working in a conventional workplace – especially in the dead of a, of a winter in north america or in parts of europe you know when you go south of the equator obviously flipping the seasons right you you would like it to be warm when it's cold and cool when it's warm well the energy that is used to heat these things or cool them down is not included
0: interesting
1: and then the fourth and then the fourth and final is The fuel that you need for you to get from A to B. So, in other words, you are driving. I don't care if you're driving Uber or Lyft, if you're driving a scooter that's gasoline powered, if you're driving um, a city bus. Doesn't really matter what the mode of transportation is. The fuel that is inside of that entity, that vehicle, is also excluded from most conventional measures of inflation, again, usually summed up by the CPI. So these are what you would call the four horses, horsemen, horsewomen, because what they are is they're things that are so valuable and so much part of the fabric of humanity for us to do stuff that we take advantage of is when they're excluded, you're not getting an accurate measure. So when you hear about women... You know, saying that they are really bothered by wage inequality, and that's a very valid, valid thing. They need to understand that this is, these are deeper things going on here. Okay, it's affecting the other gender as well, but obviously it impacts them even more so because of where they're starting. So you understand about that, or you hear about people pushing for a higher minimum wage. That's not the real issue. The real issue is their purchasing power is being completely eroded. Because they're being told that inflation is one, two or three percent, but it's actually two, three, four times that much when you net back in these four horses.
0: And regarding the last horse, um, you know um, the cost of transportation, um, does it matter whether it's um, internal combustion engine or electric?
1: Well, it, that'll definitely impact the fossil fuel economy much more. okay, but here's the thing. When you dig deep into a a supply chain, a fantastic book I recommend, and it's one of the shortest books you ever read, is called I-Pencil. It's just, you know, I as in I, the letter I, or, you know, a pronoun, pencil. When you read a a simple little tiny little pamphlet-like book like that and understand that everything is so deeply intertwined that a lot of people don't appreciate it, that it's such a simple thing takes so many different human decisions and human actions, right? Mm-hmm. Understand that even if it's even if your vehicle is run by so-called alternative measures, like electricity, so you have a Tesla, or a more conventional, you know, a lot of the other automakers have come out with hybrids, right? Or pure electronic vehicles. Bottom line is, is how is that energy being produced? If it requires any kind of resources that are related in any way, shape, or form to things that are considered conventional energy, that not still being included in the um, measure of inflation as it's presented um, on the surface. So, yeah, I think it might be a little less of an impact, but it's still an impact
0: all the same. Interesting. And – um Do you have um, any other things to say before we move on regarding inflation?
1: Well, I would say that the most important thing to understand is when you are feeling a pinch. So if you are in the audience of this podcast, you're in the listenership, you are in the community and you hear this. If you made it through this part, and again, thank you so very much for listening, and I truly hope I've added value so far. Understand, if you're feeling a pinch, if you are wondering, why do I feel like I'm not getting ahead, like maybe my parents did or my grandparents did, understand that the compounded effect of inflation, understood through an Austrian lens, we have in many measures – had over 2,000, 2,500% inflation over the last century plus. So it's starting to pick up to the point that the compounding effect is so strong that it, it, it pinches you more. So my advice to you is not to go looking to some third party for an answer, it is to figure out how can I be more of a producer? How can I create other ways to earn money? How can I start a business or join work for another person in an industry that's going to be disruptive to the, what I would contend in many respects is the broken conventional model. So in other words, if I still want to work for someone else, maybe I fear going off on my own, work for someone who's a part of a little platoon or someone who's in a community or someone's in a tribe who is doing something about these issues rather than waiting for some elected office holder to ride in on high, and it doesn't matter what banner they're flying, it really doesn't. It's not a political party thing. It's not a party thing. It's not any of that stuff. It's grassroots volunteerism, social power that you want, and that will help the blunt the impact of inflation and blunt the impact of you thinking you need a minimum wage, when well, not that. It's just the erosion of your purchasing power. It's the complete and total focus on teaching you to consume when you already are over-consuming. So see, that's the kind of way I would sum up this conversation to this point, is to ask you to really deeply analyze what you may think is, is true, and not to get discouraged when you might have a bubble pricked in your thought bubbles, you know, pun intended. It's not about making you feel like you've been lied to it's just about saying well hey look at this through a different way and be comfortable with that and don't attack the messenger just attack the fact that you need to be a lifelong student it's non-negotiable now
0: interesting um and move in with that um so one of our last topics for the session um and for all the listeners out there know that there will be a part 2 to this um so stay tuned so regarding um so for our last topic um let's talk about the gig economy or known as the sharing economy um so currently um i think you mentioned like before we started that you were in a co-working facility um which one are you in like a WeWork or well, this will give me a chance to give a plug to some of my favorite
1: people here where I live in Ohio. I am in a facility known as Cohatch, so it's spelled as C-O-H-A-T-C-H. So you can look them up under Cohatch.com. And Cohatch presently is a regional player. They are active here in central Ohio and Columbus, they're also starting to become active and open up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is also known as the Queen City. And then I've also heard that they might look at one or two other markets. So that's where I happen to be standing.
0: Mm, interesting. And uh, have you been in a WeWork before?
1: Not in a WeWork before, but I am familiar with them. And But here in Columbus, interestingly enough, last well, I checked, and I'm pretty well- attuned to the co-working and the incubator accelerators here in central Ohio, because we have a lot of them. Um, To my last knowledge, there isn't even a WeWorks here.
0: Interesting. Um, We
1: have all other different types of models. We do have some of the worldwide players um, here that are active. Um, The name's going to slip me right now, but it's the parent company of Spaces, I think it's called Spaces, um, and I always forget their parents, but there's like one or two of the national players that are active here in central Ohio, but most of the facilities here in the gig-sharing economy, the independent workforce, are either either uh, local and or regional, pl- regional um, models
0: at this point. Interesting. And do you believe that um, co-working Spaces um, play a big role? in the gig economy?
1: Absolutely they do. Last year I uh, penned a blog post and I said that there are four primary physical means where you can build a business, whether you're doing it as a side hustle, side gig, whether it's full time, you know, whether you have multiple ventures like I do. And, um, One of them is you can work out of your house, which is still very much accepted and it's still common. You, of course, still have your conventional brick and mortar. You have the coffee shop entrepreneur. Here in Columbus, Central Ohio, that is pretty much found by people who work at Panera Bread and secondly at Starbucks. But then last but not least, that fourth one that I blogged about last year is your co-working slash center slash um, accelerator incubator type business people, whether you have a virtual membership like I do, whether you use a little key fob and scan in and out and you can go to multiple locations or whether you have a physical office inside that facility. So yes, it's a huge part of the gig economy and I'm a big, huge supporter of uh, both and I think there's plenty of room for expansion yet because when acid bubbles are pricked and or deflate and or completely collapse, I think the conventional brick and mortar market is going to be impacted pretty heavily. And I think these facilities have a much higher likelihood of of, um, holding out because you're sharing the costs. Embedded in the facility versus being completely on your own on Main Street USA
0: Interesting. Um, do you find that um WeWork's collapse? um, Do you find that WeWork could still survive and provide value to society or do you think that um they're done? Well Any
1: entity, company, business, nonprofit whatever type of entity it is needs to needs to exercise what John C. Maxwell called the law of buy-in. You need to have people buy into the vision. They need to buy into the leadership. And by the way, while this podcast is not about leadership or anything like that, I just will say that leadership is not, please not about position. Leadership is a much deeper thing. And, what Maxwell's talking about of the law of buying, he's saying that the people who are the ones casting the vision, who have created the culture, you need to have confidence in them. So if you do not have confidence in them and or the ability of them to deliver what they said they are going to deliver, in other words, be productive, be producers, then it's really hard for a concern to be ongoing. So I think this is going to bear watching, but I don't know. I think there's a very good likelihood that they may not make it in their present form. Um, time will tell. History will write the, the true tale, but it's there's still a lot of humanness, and there should be, in every organization, rather than what are you doing, and how are you doing it. It's who are you, and why did you even start the enterprise to begin with?
0: Interesting. Um... And regarding, like, you know, the gig economy and all, um, you also have other companies like Fiverr and Upwork, um, allowing, you know, people to hire, uh, freelancers and all, um, do you, do you, um, do you find that there's still a lot more growth for these companies, the platform providers, or not?
1: I believe there is, yes. Um... I did a live stream, I did um, a webinar last year, or may have been in 2018, uh, for a group of um, home educators, okay, and I didn't do this for anyone, but I did happen to do it for them, and I was talking about Gen Y millennials and Gen Z, I guess we'll call it for simple purposes, post-millennials, I don't know if they have a direct monitor yet that I'm aware of, and here's the thing. These generations um, are not looking for the same thing as the Xers, because I mentioned earlier I'm in my four, early 40s. I'm an Xer. I'm a Gen Xer. There's still a fair amount of baby boomers still active in some way, shape, or form in the economies of the world, and even even a limited amount of the silent generation. So bottom line is, is these last two generations. And by the way, by some demographers are saying that we actually have started Gen Alpha. So it depends who you talk to, but some will say that the very youngest in our society, and I think the cutoff is like maybe five or six years old, are now Gen Alpha. So it depends on what what way you want to slice and dice the uh, generational years. But these last two generations that are now aging into the workforce and are in conventional classrooms they don't want the same things that their parents and grandparents wanted. So there's plenty of room for growth in these various enterprises, but I think there are four fundamental things that are holding it back. And it'll be a function of how can we deal with these four things through a volunteerism approach um, to see if we can overcome these um, obstacles so the gig economy will realize its full potential.
0: And do you fear that um, the cost of labor will be commoditized with the gig economy um, becoming mainstream?
1: There is a concern, yes, that there will be some commoditization. A lot of it will be, what gig platform are you speaking of? If you're talking about something that can be easily done by AI through machine learning um, it can be replaced by drone delivery, autonomous vehicles. These are other futuristic trends that I personally am watching. Um, or it can be, you know, good old fashioned computerized and sent off to uh, another nation where the cost unit per labor is much lower. Then absolutely the commodization will absolutely kick in and will take a big bite. But here's where the silver lining is is if more and more people join the gig economy and they're offering more right brain creative things that cannot be easily commoditized, then we will be just fine. A lot of it is what kind of product, service, or specialized knowledge is being transferred and shared within the economy um, versus what used to be so the older industrial ages there were two back to back industrial ages a lot of the people who came of age in those are definitely at risk of commodization especially if they're doing something that will be impacted by those trends but if they're doing something that's much harder to you know much harder to replace then they will be just fine and they will spark the next generation of the gig economy as it continues to expand
0: Interesting. Um, and regarding like creativeness, um, what are some tasks that would probably not be um commoditized, or like what skills?
1: I would say, I would say things that involve a more advanced way of, des- of design. So, if you were designing things where you put your own unique stamp on it, and I'll come up with one that comes to mind because I have a friend of mine, Katie, who is in this space, 3D scanning, okay? Which I think has so much potential and there's so much opportunity and it's an almost infinite pie of opportunity that will make it through. I think certain elements of 3D printing, especially as the applications for it continue to grow, will be very hard to commoditize because there's just such an, demand for it and some of the, the demand by the way will be manufactured and created when people come to the realization that this will solve their challenges sometimes you create the demand by educating that's another thing by the way that will not be easily commoditized is people who are lifelong learners who are transferring their knowledge because since the conventional classrooms the accredited institutions are being lapped. They're being hit hard. MB. I've heard. I've read several articles saying that conventional MBAs. A lot of the schools are deeply struggling. There are actual universities closing because that is um, an emblematic of the older economy. It's of the, um, you know, it's from the past. It's from an era where we were grooming people to sit in office buildings and or prior to that in factories doing menial labor, right? So bottom line is that we moved away from that heavily.
0: Interesting. So things
1: that require a lot of your own touch, a lot of your own skill, coaching, for example, a lot of people need coaching and that is delivered by very unique people, people who are mentors, people who are training on soft skills, Things like that; Um, these things will absolutely thrive in a gig economy versus stuff that is very easy to replicate, to systematize, duplicate, and you know, um, mirror through um, these various futuristic trends, which are already here.
0: Interesting, coaching. Hmm. So, how would that work, um, coaching in the gig economy? Well,
1: I like to say that these are services that are filling in the innumerable gaps that conventional classroom learning leaves in its wake. Through the research that I've done in my first business venture, my educational work, I believe, and this is highly subjective, that there are 15 major gaps that exist, and again, you could talk to 10 other people, and they'd probably come up with 10 other numbers. They may say, well, why are these separate? Why are, you know, what about this? Why didn't you include this? So of those 15 guests that I personally identified through my own research in my first business venture, some of them are going to be addressed and dealt with by people who coach. And if you are in a blue ocean rather than a red ocean with the type of coaching you offer, you're going to be in good shape, meaning you're not being you know, eaten up by your competition, okay? So if you're doing a very type of micro-niche coaching, like coaching at-risk youth who happen to be female um, and happen to be in a certain state or something, you are micro-targeting it, and you should be in pretty good shape, okay? Another example would be people who are training, because a lot of our organizations and institutions were raised up and built in either or both if there are continuing concerns of the two industrial ages. There was a white and a blue-collar industrial age. Okay, so a lot of these institutions do not have the tool set that they need for the modern generations. So if the millennials and or the know, soon enough the uh, alphas are coming in and they don't want to work for themselves, they still do want to work for someone else, these institutions are going to have to adapt rather quickly, I would say, or they're going to be not going concerns. They will be wiped out. So consultants and trainers are going to be at a high premium. So these are the type of people, people who deliver soft skills education, you know, through micro schools. I know several people in my network who create and have deployed um, schools, you know, that are outside of the conventional big box model from the industrial age. Because the conventional school system in America especially actually wasn't even the industrial age. It was the agricultural age it was created in. So bottom line is there's a lot of opportunity for those kind of people.
0: Interesting. Um, and regarding um, coaching and also, like sports coach, um, do you think um, they'll still be in high demand in the future? Well,
1: it's, okay, so if you're talking now about a more mainline version of coaching as in athletics mm-hmm. um and sports i think there will still be some market for that because i think we need a world where we are rebuilding our social fabric our social fabric has been frayed in many ways over the last several decades first of all the rise of the internet was fantastic for so many reasons but one of the downsides of it is the internet took people away from other people and they began to only think they can associate online digitally not really so the way the human humans are created the way things work is I don't think that's really feasible so that's the first area where athletic coaches can still find utility and purpose and demand. Um, Another is a lot of our societies still are very much in love with sports. Um, You know, there are dips here and there. There are ebbs, but, you know, the flood tide eventually comes back and it tends to even out. So your more conventional mainline, what people would call athletic coaches versus the life coaches, business coaches, parent coaches, um, you know, marriage coaches and such. I think there's still space for them, and I think they have potential, especially as we attempt to get the word out, that you need to have real human relationships in community. And you still have to be able to shake people's hands, look them in the eye, be able to discuss things with them instead of argue and debate with them. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: And how about um the blue collar jobs like um plumbers, electricians? Um will they um still be in high demand and around the world or will robots possibly replace them?
1: Oh, great question. Um well here's the thing. I don't know if I don't know if there's gonna be a robot or any kind of AI that will be able to unclog Um, a toilet or a drain in your shower or install set things or put in sewer piping, you know, piping below the foundation of a commercial building anytime soon, let alone other such trades, occupational trades. So that's another area of the economy that I think will, it's not loosely part of it. It's not really part of the gig sharing economy so much as it's, trades that are just so much part of the fabric of the exchange of ideas and the exchange of commerce. Because while you can go on YouTube and watch all these different videos on how to unclog your own toilet, how to start your own engine, how to change your own oil and stuff, there is there are going to be people that'll be peeled away that'll be able to do it themselves. But I still think that demand will hold steady enough that these people will be fine as we continue to transition out of the second industrial age because a lot of the people who are providing these services are aging rapidly because a lot of them are boomers.
0: Mm, interesting. Um, and before we go, uh, do you have any last things to say to the audience?
1: Uh, yes. Um, I would say this. Look at these, look at everything we've discussed on this podcast today as an opportunity to not only earn income through being a producer and a creator of lasting value, where you transfer your skills, gifts, and abilities to someone else and trade for just compensation, but also look at it as an opportunity to create and form new relationships through tribes, communities, and if you want to flash back a couple centuries, little platoons like Burke said. So look at it through the lens of opportunity and relationship. Don't look at it through the lens of scarcity, through the lens of competition, through the lens of force or coercion or authority. Look through it through volunteerism, through individualism, through the ability to be entrepreneurial, because you don't have to run your own venture to think entrepreneurially. You can be an entrepreneur inside of a larger entity. So if you think this way and understand these principles of not only Austrian economics, but the real definition of inflation, the gig economy's massive potential when done well, that this is not a time to be fearful. It's a time to embrace being a student and to not say that you have to be a student in the sense of, not having any fun with your life, but being able to mix them together, have fun while you're learning and have fun while you're being part of solving things that probably upset you and make you, you know, your head, heart, skirt, and soul are aligned. You want to be part of these solutions, but you were trained by the conventional system and by the industrial era to look for a big entity to solve it. You need to break away from that and look at it through a completely different paradigm. So that would be how I would sum all this up.
0: That is really awesome, day, um, Sj. Great advice. Um, wait, you said Sj was not um, your first name. It's just um, your first two initials. Um, what should we? Oh no, uh, no!
1: Oh no! 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 My name is Sj. Okay. So just it just my it is my name, not my initials. Nope. Thank you for asking.
0: Okay, sounds good. Um thank you so much for being on the podcast, SJ. Um thank you for the awesome the great advice that you've given us. And um can't wait for part two.
1: Excellent. Well it was my pleasure and I trust that I was able to do what I like to hashtag some of my things on social media, which is serve and solve. Those are two of my main mantras in life. Serving people and solving challenges,
0: obstacles, and roadblocks by being a thought leader. That is awesome. So guys, thanks for listening. Part two of this interview will be coming up soon. But in the meantime, catch up on our latest episodes and check out our blog. The link to the blog is in the description. Have a great day, folks.